Lord, we do indeed exalt you. We want this time to be about you. It is not about us. Be exalted and magnified within us and through us this morning. Speak to us through the Bible, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I must admit that I come this morning with a specific agenda in this sermon. I don't think I've ever said that in a, in a sermon, but I want to change the way you view the rainbow today, okay? So we're going to talk about, believe it or not, begin with rainbow stories. You guys recognize this, right? What? Kid you not, this is from their website. This is the origin of the rainbow, according to Skittles. 208 million years ago, where do you think they got that from? From the ocean below, a colorful force with the strength of a thousand rainbows pierced the surface, cracked Pangaea's supercontinent. Now, obviously, I've talked about Pangaea and so on, so at least they're acknowledging that. And altered the atmospheric levels of fruity juiciness on planet Earth forever. From this geyser sprayed forth an endless rain of Skittles and lemon, strawberry, grape, orange, in one flavor too notorious to name. Skittles covered the land far and wide, high and low, as far as the eye could see. Thus Skittles was created, and their motto was created. What's the motto, Skittles? Taste the rainbow. Exactly. Who likes Skittles? I did when I was like five years old, whenever it came around. Now it's just too much sugar. Okay, who's smart, who's brave enough to admit it? God bless you. Okay. Every once in a while, like, <laughs> what'd you say? You like all candy? That's okay. That's okay. So that's the origin of the rainbow from Skittles. Okay, you guys recognize this guy? Oh my gosh. Quote John 3.16, quiet. You know who this guy is? Yay! Now there are those, when they see the rainbow, they think of Lucky Charms. This is Lucky Story. This is all from their website, by the way. Somewhere over a rainbow, sounds like a song, right? In a magical forest lives a clever, playful, and mischievous leprechaun named Lucky. His father was a wise man and knew it was Lucky's destiny to bring magic from his world to the real world. He placed eight magical charms in Lucky's hands as a way of protecting him along his journey and told Lucky to respect their magical powers and others he may encounter along the way. And as his legend grew... Children everywhere coveted Lucky's magical charms, and hundreds of games of hide-and-seek ensued, and today, Lucky outwits and outsmarts those pesky kids, discovering and sometimes losing his magical charms, always with children hot on his heels. That's why Frosted Lucky Charms, they're magically delicious, right? Now, I did not grow up on, my mother was far more health conscious. Who grew up on Lucky Charms? Clet, I expect you to raise your hand. That's great. Okay. And it's, 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 
when I first time I tasted it, when I was younger, it was okay. As an adult, I cannot stand the way it tastes now. And so it's just too much sugar. But there are people that think of a rainbow, they think of Frosted Lucky Charms. I did. That's what I grew up with, right? Skittles and Frosted Lucky Charms. Now, for this next generation, I'm afraid this is what they think of when they see the rainbow. You will see this everywhere in the month of June. Everywhere. Okay? This, of course, is the, um, the gay pride flag. Did some research on this. Did you know that the original gay pride flag flew at the San Francisco Gay Freedom Day Parade on June 25th in 1978? Now, I, let me just say about this. I would, the Bible obviously condones homosexuality and so on. And it condones murder and rape and all sorts of sin, okay? But originally, what were they doing with this gay pride flag? I mean, I mean in a sense that at that point in time in, in, in American culture, right, at that point in time in American culture, there was a persecution for, for the gays. We wouldn't persecute, you know, sorry, the thieves or gossips or so on. And so, and it should not have been. The Bible talks about reaching out to all types of people, that there's some that were thieves and murderers and homosexuals. They're not anymore. But what they did was, was they took this flag, and the colors reflect the diversity of the LGBTQ community and the spectrum of human sexuality and gender. I'm not going to go into what each color represents, okay? But today, for a generation, when they see that flag, they think of the rainbow, Okay? Now, what's the original story of the rainbow? Let's look at Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9, 8 through 17. Okay, get your Bibles out. I did not put this up here. So are your phones or your tablets. Let's dive into the origin of the rainbow. And I'm excited to share with you some of the things that I've learned. For those of you that are they're still finding your, this chapter, um, God has just destroyed the world with a flood. And he's just, the, Noah and his seven other family members came out and they're looking at this brand new world that they're now living in. And God gives them principles for society, divine blessings regarding health and food and justice and so on. And the next thing he says is this. Then God spoke to Noah, verse 8, and his, to his sons with him, saying, Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, even every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, Neither shall there again be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all successive generations. I set my bow, in, or my bow, or my bow, excuse me, rainbow, my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. 
and never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Now, despite all the stories about the origins of the rainbow that we make up and whatnot and like to believe, what does science tell us about a rainbow? Well, it's an arc of concentric colored bands that develops when sunlight interacts with raindrops. There would be no rainbow if there wasn't what? Rain, obviously. You know how it works? I think sunlight is refracted, is refracted, refracted as it enters a raindrop, which causes the different wavelengths of visible light to separate become different colors. So the longer wavelengths of light, which color are they, do you know? Red, exactly. They're bent in the least while shortest wavelengths of are violent and blue are bent the most. And it all has to do with the angle at which the sun shines through the different raindrops. Now as kids, we grow up and are taught how to memorize the colors of the rainbow by the name who? Roy G. Biv. What, they're what? Red orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. Okay? I put that in for my wife, who's a scientific nerd, and she is loving this part of the sermon. So, when I get home this afternoon, she's going to explain even more how a rainbow works to me. And then when I wake up from my coma, I'll be good. According to the Bible... A rainbow is connected to a covenant. And we're going to look this morning at what is a covenant. We'll get some basic covenant theology. So what is a covenant? I put this up here for us from gotquestions.org so you can understand this. Okay. Basically, a covenant is an agreement between two parties. And this is crucial. There are two basic types of covenants, conditional and unconditional. Okay. A conditional or bilateral. Now, what does bilateral mean? Two sides. So conditional and bilateral are the same thing. A conditional or bilateral covenant is an agreement that is binding on both parties for its fulfillment. Both parties agree to fulfill certain conditions. If either party fails to meet their responsibilities, the covenant is broken and neither party has to fulfill the expectations of the covenant. An unconditional or unilateral, and unilateral means what? One. One-sided covenant. An agreement between two parties, but only one of the two parties has to do something. Nothing is required of the other parties. The other party, okay? Now, generally speaking, there are a number of covenants, but just to simplify, I just want to say that there are basically six covenants there's what we call the Noahic covenant, Noah's covenant. Okay? God would never again destroy the earth with a flood of water. That's the, we just read. There's the Abrahamic covenant. God made with Abraham. God chose a special people called out from among the nations through whom the Messiah would come. Pretty simple, right? There's the priestly covenant. Do you know that one? God promised the perpetual priesthood. This is when Phineas killed the man and the woman that were going to consummate an unbiblical marriage. And it, his action um, 
held off the wrath of God. And so God established this priestly covenant. The Mosaic covenant God made with Moses. He revealed his holiness and the need for a Savior to shed his blood for the remission of the sins of man. No person could ever uphold all the demands of the law. So he pointed to a need for a Savior. The Davidic covenant, God promised David that a perpetual reign of the descendants of David would be on his throne. And the new covenant, which we're in right now, God would forgive man's sins and put his law within his people, writing it on their hearts. Okay, that's from Genesis, or Jeremiah 31. Those are the six basic covenants. Again, you can have more or less depending on what your theology is, but generally speaking, those are the six. Now, one of the most recognized covenants in the Bible is the covenant God made with Abraham. So get your Bibles out. Go a few chapters over to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. Look at the first three verses there. This is the covenant stated from God to Abraham, who at this point in time, his name is Abram. It says, And the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed." That is the Abrahamic covenant. Now, God made a what? A conditional or unconditional covenant with Abraham. It's unconditional. It's a unilateral, unconditional covenant in which he promised to make Abraham into a great nation. Now, there's a ceremony recorded in Genesis 15, and you can turn there to Genesis 15. It's going to reveal the unconditional nature of this covenant. Okay? Chapter 15, verses 9 through 21. After asking, Abraham asked God, how can I know that I'm going to possess all this land, this promised land? This is what God says in verse 9. Bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses and Abraham drove, Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Why did terror and great darkness fell upon him? Because God had manifested himself in a different way. We can't be in the presence of God. He is what? A consuming fire. So this terror and great darkness fell upon him. That's why it says, God said to him in a different form, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Of course, that is what? The 400 years of slavery in Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and after they will come out with many possessions. That's this whole book of Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation, they'll return there, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, 
to your descendants I have given this land, from the river of Egypt as far as the great river to the river Euphrates, and on and on it goes, a bunch of names I don't want to repeat. But you get the idea there, okay? When a covenant is dependent upon both parties keeping commitments, in a conditional bilateral covenant, covenant, then both parties would have passed through, okay, the pieces of animals. But here, God alone moves between the halves of the animals while Abraham is in a deep sleep. See? So God's solitary action indicates that the covenant is principally his responsibility. It is his promise. So God binds himself to the covenant. Okay? And this covenant would be fulfilled by one party. Who? God. God. Later, God gave Abraham the right of circumcision. That was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. What was that sign? Circumcision. All the males in Abraham's line were to be circumcised and carry with them a lifelong mark in their flesh that they were part of God's physical blessing in the world. Okay, so that's basic covenant theology. And we could go into more, but we only have so much time here. But let's talk about now God's covenant with Noah. Okay? Now, as you may recall, how long has Noah been in the ark? Do you remember how many days? 370 days on the ark. They just stepped out of the ark into a new world. Remember that lush green earth? that Noah and his family in the first society had known, that's all gone. And what Noah saw with his eyes was just death and destruction and desolation everywhere. There was some plant life, but it wasn't extensive. The temperature was much more extreme compared to the, the near uniform tropic temperatures he knew before. He could see and feel a, a much more rugged terrain with mountain ranges higher than anything he had ever witnessed. The appearance of dark clouds surely sent shivers down his spine as he only knew those type of clouds to bring what? Destructive rain. Not just rain, but it was destructive rain. And if you ask someone who lives in the southern United States, as I have in the past, they would think of rain. Yes, and what do you think of rain? They would probably say, well, when it rains, it just brings more humidity. That's what it does in the south, and we're just used to it. That's just the way it is. Okay. If you ask someone who lives in the Midwest of the United States what they think of rain, they'll probably say when it rains, it brings cooler temperatures, and we're used to it. We're used to it. If you ask someone who lives in the Pacific Northwest of the United States what they think of rain, they're going to say it rains most of the time. We're just used to it, right? We're just used to it. But if you ask Noah and his family what they think of rain, they're going to be terrified of it. They're going to be terrified of it. For all they know is that rain brings utter and complete destruction. So God has to educate Noah and his family that rain is necessary. It's now the new water cycle. No longer is the earth going to be watered from the springs below. It's going to come from above in the form of rain. And so to reassure Noah, God is about to promise him there will never be a worldwide devastation such as that from the first rain. There will be localized flooding and rain for sure, but not a worldwide flooding from rain. And so after instructing Noah what 
he must do, live according to the following principles in regard to family, food, health, and justice that was last week's sermon. God tells Noah what he is going to do, and it comes in the form of a covenant. And let's just spend the rest of our time basically looking at the characteristics of that covenant, okay? Number one, it's unconditional. Go back to Genesis 9. I want to show you something here. Genesis chapter 9. You'll see a pattern here over and over and over and over again repeated. Genesis 9, verse 9. Now behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you. Verse 11. I establish my covenant with you. Verse 12. God said, this is a sign of the covenant which I am making between me and you and every living creature that is with you. Verse 17, I think it says, And God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Verse 17. So God unilaterally, unconditionally initiated this covenant. It only involves God. See that? It's unconditional in the sense that there are no conditions on the part of man to validate or invalidate this covenant. There are no conditions in man that make him deserve the covenant. There are no conditions in man that make him sustain the covenant. There are no conditions in man that cause the termination of the covenant. And this, folks, is an astounding grace. Because what has happened for the first 1,656 years? Man has decayed, corrupted to the point that every thought and intention is only evil continually. And what you're going to read after verse 17 is a sin story, the sin of Noah. And God knows that these eight people who represent all of humanity are going to reproduce what? More sinful people. And so this is an astounding act of grace. Very quickly, man is going to be as wicked as he was before the flood. And in spite of knowing all this, God institutes this unconditional, unilateral covenant. It's amazing. Not only is it unconditional, it is unbreakable. Through verses 9 through 17, we read over and over again, my covenant between me and the earth, between me and all flesh. It is unbreakable because it is a covenant made by the eternal God who cannot change and who cannot lie. That's 1 Samuel 15, 29. But if we're honest with ourselves, this characteristic of God's uh, covenant with Noah, it's difficult for us to, to grasp or even to comprehend because we don't use the word covenant today anymore, do we? We use the term contract. In fact, the only time we use the word covenant is in regard to what? Marriage, right? A covenant agreement between a husband and a wife. And a marriage covenant was always meant to be binding for life. So when you entered into a marriage covenant, it hinged upon the faithfulness of each party to keep the covenant. So we see that a covenant always, go back, always goes back to a person's character. But today in marriage, even though we use the word covenant, it's not considered binding, is it? Marriage has 
descended into a contractual agreement with conditions for compliance, sometimes that are written in advance in what we call a prenuptial agreement. But that hasn't been the case for most of history. In ancient times and in Scripture, do you know that covenants were the foundations of societies? When you made a covenant with somebody, you bound yourself to that promise. Your reputation was all bound up in your loyalty to that covenant. In fact, covenants were so reliable, they were made not just between people, but between families and cities and nations. However, these covenants were always conditional or bilateral. They required two parties to fill their part of the agreement. But with Noah, in the Noah covenant, you see what God is doing? He's making the best possible kind of covenant for our benefit. It's unilateral. And who's it dependent upon? God. It's not dependent upon us. It's a unilateral, unconditional, unbreakable covenant. And it's reliable because of the character of God. And He is faithful. He is faithful. Now, Beyond that, it's unconditional, it's unbreakable, it is universal. Look at verse 9, he says, Now behold, I establish, I myself do establish my covenant with you. Who is he speaking to there? Eight people. That is what? All of humanity. <laughs> it is all of humanity. He was speaking to the entire human race. Yet you know that no other covenant, all the ones we went through except this one, has been made throughout history, applies to all humanity. This is the only covenant that applies to all humanity. Who does the Abrahamic covenant apply to? Gentiles? Nope. The new covenant, who does it apply to? Believers, right? Not unbelievers. This is the only one that applies to all humanity. The Abrahamic covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the Davidic covenant or the new covenant do not apply to all humanity. This is the only one that applies to everybody, Jew or Gentile, male, female, everybody. And this is why the covenant with Noah is the basis of God's goodness to all of humanity. It is common grace, which is why Jesus can say God causes the sun to rise and fall on what? The righteous and the unrighteous. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay? It's the universal covenant. It's also persistent. If you look at Genesis 9, verse 12, it says it's for all successive generations. Okay? Some may even use the word everlasting. It's not everlasting. I'll explain it in a moment. Because we know that this covenant will remain until when? Look at Genesis 8, 22. What does it say? while the earth remains. See that? It will exist until or while the earth remains. When's the earth going to cease to be in existence? At his second coming. And they'll have a new heaven and a new earth. Okay? Then there will no longer be any covenant with Noah. It's ended. Another thing that's unique about this covenant is it is physical. Let me explain what I mean by that. Look at verse 10 of chapter 9. And with every living creature that is with you, 
the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that comes out of the ark, and every, even every beast of the earth. So the inclusion of animals reveals to us this is not a spiritual covenant. It's a physical, temporal, or temporary covenant. Every other covenant, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, and so on, they're spiritual. This isn't spiritual at all. It's a physical covenant. This is physical, and it's not a covenant in the new heavens and the new earth. Okay? You with me so far? Because that's the characteristics of this covenant. Okay, now let's get to the fun part. I think we'll open your mind and, and blow your mind away, I hope. The sign of the covenant. We begin with that, let's end with that. It says this, when God gave Abraham a covenant, the sign was circumcision. You want to tell me what the, what the sign of covenant was for the covenant with um, Moses? You know what it was? The Sabbath. Okay? The sign of this covenant is in verse 13. I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. Tom, do you, you hunt, right? Okay, I was going to have you bring your, do you use a bow and arrow? I was going to have you bring that today, but I forgot to mention that to you as a you know, visual object demonstration. But the sign, the rainbow, okay? This is the visible evidence of God's guarantee made to all humanity and animals. Okay, it's to everybody and everything, even the earth. Okay? He sets his bow in the clouds, right? And that's the reason for rainbows. We scientifically know how that works. Like I said, I opened the sermon with various understandings of the rainbow. Let me take you through a more biblical and thorough understanding of the bow, which I hope will forever change the way you think of a rainbow. The word bow here is not rainbow. Did you know that? It is not rainbow. It is the Hebrew word quesheth. It's the same word for a battle bow, a bow and arrow, a weapon of death and destruction. And God is going to shoot a rainbow and the arrows at the cell phones that are on. I'm joking with you. I always like doing that. I do the same thing when I go. To, I got to remember to turn it off when I go to movie theater or whatever. Now, watch this. The Old Testament describes God frequently as, as a warrior. See these verses here? Look at that. The Lord is a warrior. And the men in this crowd are like, yes, right? He's got a bow, and he makes it bare. His, his arrows, they're like lightning. There are lightning, okay? So a warrior with a bow and arrow, Right? And so God's described as a warrior with a bow. Now watch this. As an act of judgment in the flood, figuratively speaking, God the warrior shot his lightning arrows and pierced the earth. The earth broke open and the fountains of the deep burst forth. Now through volcanic eruptions, the exploding planet sent ash and molten rock into the sky and punctured the water canopy, releasing a deluge of water from above. You also know the atmosphere quickly changed. Clouds formed. And what came from those clouds, what happens in volcanic eruptions, is there's lightning, the arrows of God, and destruction fell upon the planet. God bent his bow in wrath. 
But since that time, God has hung his, up his bow in the sky where everybody can see it. So next time you see a rainbow, that's God's bow that he hung up because this is not the time of judgment. It is a time of grace, mercy, and peace. It is a time of God's favor. It's a time of God's kindness that leads to man's repentance, as I've been saying. The sign of the bow is a token of his promise to never destroy the world again as he did with water. So when you leave church today and you see the rugged Mount Rainier or the high mountains of the Olympic or Cascade Ranges, or when you go to the Pacific Ocean, and remember that under that, all that water are some of the deepest sea basins in the world. Or when you visit the Grand Canyon, or see a documentary on the polar ice caps, or read about fossil-bearing rocks, when you experience the seasonal temperature changes, these are all a reminder of the destruction of the flood. And this is how you should biblically see the world. It was not meant to be this way. But when you see the rainbow, that's a reminder that God will never, that it will never happen again. He's never going to flood the world with water, even though man deserves it. Even though the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, sin will abound. God is saying, when you see that rainbow, I won't do this. I won't destroy man again in that way. Now, in the future, God's going to pick his bow up again. At the very end of human history, he will bend the bow and release his arrows of lightning, and the entire universe will be destroyed by what? Fire. Exactly, 2 Peter 3. But until that day comes, every time you see a rainbow, don't think of Skittles, don't think of Lucky Charms, and certainly don't think of the, the, gay, pride, you know, the, the gay flag, the LGBTQ movement. Remember, it represents, it's the bow of God being hung up. It represents victory of grace over judgment, the triumph of mercy over wrath. And thus, this is the age for us to go to the ends of the earth and testify about God and His mercy and grace. God is overlooking this time of ignorance. It's a time of favor. It's a time for man to repent and come to Him. And so every time it rains here, which is almost every day, <laughs> if the sun is out and you can see a rainbow, it's God hanging up His bow of judgment. And we're in that time of grace. A time is coming when there will be no more rainbow. He's going to take that bow. He's going to bend it. In judgment. So I said in Sunday school, I told you this was the application point. Tell somebody. During this time, because it's only during this time. Because when this time is up, when he takes that bow down and he bends that bow and pulls that arrow out, it's over. There is no more time. So others need to know. Amen? Now, 
when we see the rainbow, why do we know that the world will never be destroyed by a flood of water? Because God said so, and it ultimately goes back to God's character, and God is what? Faithful to his covenant. And so we're going to close with the old hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness. Appropriate to end with that classic hymn. Amen? Amen. Won't you stand with me, and we'll close this morning. Heavenly Father, we want to praise you for your great faithfulness. We love you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.